This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 16. We are going to return to our series in Matthew uh, in the middle of January. Uh, We took a break uh, as we began December, looked at a series uh, leading up to Christmas in December, uh, in which we looked at various passages in the book of Romans in light of the birth of Christ and the celebration of his birth, Romans 1, of the arrival of our Lord Jesus, Romans 5, the reconciliation between fallen man and God that he came to bring about, Uh, Romans 6, that this is the Savior who sanctifies. His purpose is not merely to save, as if that weren't enough, but to transform us into his own likeness, to undo the effects of sin, not just in separating us from God, but in marring the image of God in us uh, to make us holy, not just in standing before God, that is our justification, but in actual our, our actual living before God. And then Christmas Eve, we saw in Romans 10 how he is the Savior who invites, invites us to come and to, uh, to enjoy the relationship with God we were created to have, and that he, through his life and death and resurrection, brings about. Well, on this last Sunday of 2008, uh, as we were have been in Romans in December, it seemed a good thing maybe just to stay in Romans for the entire month. So as we close out the year, we're going to also look at the final passage in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Hear the word of God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we study your word together for your help, your grace, your light as we study. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts, our minds to receive your word, to hear your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul closes his letter to the Romans with a doxology. Now, for most of you, that probably is a familiar word because not just but a few minutes ago, we sang the doxology. Now, we call that the doxology. There are actually any number of doxologies uh, that might be sung. But the doxology is, in that case, a short song that gives praise to God, and that's in fact what the word means. Now, sometimes you can't break a word into its parts and get its meaning. If you try that with butterfly, you quickly go astray. 
Uh, however, doxology does work that way. Uh, you're familiar perhaps with the word logos, which is the last part of that word that refers to word. Uh, doxa is the Greek word that means glory. And so a doxology is words of glory, or words of praise, or an ascription of praise to God. And in this doxology that we've just read, Paul gives praise to God at the conclusion of his letter to Rome uh, because of how God works in the lives of his people to strengthen them. That's the word that he uses. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you. Now, how does he do that? How does God strengthen his people? Well, in a word, through the gospel. Through the gospel. Now, too many Christians tend to think of the gospel as something that non-Christians need, that unbelievers need. Well, we need to preach the gospel to people who are not Christians. And as Christians, we just need teaching from the Bible. Dear friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, of course, unbelievers need the gospel because the gospel is the good news, well, that's what the word means, of what God has done to bring fallen, sinful people back into a relationship with himself, the relationship we were created to, to have. And until that relationship is restored, nothing else in this life is quite right. You can have a beautiful, magnificent house, but if it's built on a bad foundation, everything is not right. And so it is with our lives in this world. We can have a lot of things going for us, but if we don't know the God where we're created to know, there's an emptiness there, there's a hole there that nothing else will fill, and life cannot be quite right, in fact, cannot ultimately be right at all, and certainly eternity won't be right at all, until that relationship with God is restored. So yes, non-Christians need the gospel. The truth is this, Christians also need the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. We need to have it repeated. We need to revisit it all the time. In fact, we need to hear the gospel of Christ weekly and every time that we gather for public worship. We come to Christ through the gospel, yes, but we also grow in Christ through that same gospel, the message of what God has done for us in Christ. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. In the middle of ascribing praise to God, he talks about the gospel, and especially he mentions here four dimensions of the gospel that we need to be aware of and understand, because this is what God uses to enable us to grow to maturity as Christians. First of all, Paul mentions here the method of the gospel, the method of by which the gospel is communicated and brought to bear. Notice what he says. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, and, could also translate that, that is, by way of explanation, my gospel, that is, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the method of the gospel? How is it communicated? How does it go forth? Well, Paul mentions here specifically preaching. Preaching. Now, normally with preaching, I think what Paul has in mind here is a formal declaration of the gospel, such as might happen right now uh, from the pulpit of a church when the church is gathered for worship. It's important, however, to recognize that not everything said from 
a pulpit in a church is necessarily biblical preaching, at least of the nature that Paul had in mind. There's a lot of talk from pulpits that passes for preaching these days that actually is not. One of the most egregious abuses of the pulpit that I ever heard personally occurred right after I had gone away to college. And I went to visit a church, it was not a PCA church, I'm happy to say, uh, where the sermon basically consisted of talk about the prospects of the local college football team for that fall, which, as it turned out, was rather bleak. The, the season, not the sermon. The sermon was far more hopeful than the season proved to be. But talking about football from the pulpit is not preaching. Talking about politics, as the preacher offers his opinions and commentary on the political events of the day, is not preaching. Talking about morality from the pulpit of a church is not biblical preaching. So what is? Well, as you look at the assumption about preaching in the scriptures, it seems to involve two elements. It involves the exposition of the Word of God. Exposition means explanation. The Word of God means the Scriptures. Preaching is tied to the Scriptures. Preaching is taking what a passage of the Bible says and unfolding it, explaining it, looking at the words, looking at the structure, looking at the sentences, looking at the paragraph or the text as a whole and saying, what does this text mean? mean? To do that, you first have to answer, what did this text mean in its original context? How would the original readers of this have heard it? What would it have meant to them in their original context? And only then can you say, okay, what does that mean to us today? So what does the text mean? Explaining that is a central task of biblical preaching. Then the flip side of that is answering the question, how does this text apply? We want to explain it, but we also want to apply it. And again, you have to go back and say, how did it originally apply? And then how does it apply today? Sometimes it may apply very directly. Love your neighbor as yourself does not require a great deal of hermeneutical effort to understand as you move from early in the Old Testament even to the present day. And so some require more uh, interpretive work than others as we take the commands, the words of God, and bring them into the present day to how they apply to us today. Now, the ways that you might love your neighbor as yourself, you know, is various as the number of neighbors around you or number of people in your lives, uh, how that might apply. But the point is, biblical preaching involves explanation of the Word of God and then application of the Word of God as best we can, rightly understood. Now, I say formal preaching, and that's, that's true here, the preaching of the word in a formal sense, but it's also true in an informal sense, in the informal sense of that word preaching, of proclaiming, making known, which is in an informal way what you who teach Sunday school do, or what you do if you talk to someone about Jesus, you are making known what he has done. But even there, what you're saying should be scriptural, should be biblical, an application uh, of what the Bible itself 
actually teaches. So that even there, you're not saying, well, you know, I like to think about God this way. Well, no. You're saying this is what the Scriptures tell us about God, what God himself has revealed about himself. And we're not at liberty just to make up any crazy ideas we want to about how we'd like to think about God. It has to be rooted in the Scriptures. So whether it's formal preaching from the pulpit or on a more informal level in teaching in a classroom or talking in a living room or whatever it might be, we need to understand that what Paul has in mind by preaching is the exposition and application of the Word of God. And Paul himself says that he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God, not just focusing on certain passages or certain ideas that we like to the exclusion of others, uh, but also preaching on those things that we might, or studying or reading those things that we might otherwise avoid. That's why it's so helpful in preaching to preach through books of the Bible in their entirety. Because that way we're taking everything God said, and you're not left to the, uh, to the whims of my own personal inclinations. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not. I, I'm forced to preach on texts I might otherwise put aside. I might otherwise never choose to preach on. And that's true in your reading. You don't just select your favorite passages to read them over and over. You read the whole counsel of God. Because Leviticus is important for you today. Micah has something to say to us today. And we need the whole word of God, not just our favorite selected parts of it. So the method of the gospel is preaching. The content of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 25. Who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, we just said it's preaching the scriptures. Well, the Bible is about Jesus. From beginning to end, the Bible is about Jesus. It's about a lot of other things on the way, but they all add up to and point toward Jesus. Uh, Turn over a page to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul makes this point about his own ministry. He says, when I came to you, brothers, he's talking to the Christians in the the ancient city of Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, some people will say, well, you know, Paul was in Athens. He tried to be brilliant. He tried to be philosophical, and that failed. So when he went to Corinth, he just decided he just preached Jesus only. Well, that's, that's nonsense. Paul preached Jesus, preached Christ crucified in Athens. He interacted with them where they were, but he was preaching Christ crucified, and it wasn't a failure. There were those who believed in Athens. And so when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he says, when I was with you, it was my intent to preach Christ and him crucified, that one who died on the cross, who was raised to life. So the content of the gospel is Jesus. Now, that's true, certainly in the New Testament, but it's also true of the Old Testament. Notice what Paul says as he goes on in verse 25 and 26. Preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, that is, made known or revealed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the commandment of the eternal God. What Bible did Paul use? 
From what Bible did he preach? The Old Testament. We saw that with Peter on the day of Pentecost when he preaches from, from Joel, the gospel. Well, Paul is saying here that he's speaking of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to how he's revealed in the Old Testament. He refers to the mystery, which in the scriptures tends to mean something that was once not known but now has been made known. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to turn over or just listen, uh, Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the mystery that is Christ, but now made known. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, what is it? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. But the Gentiles are also going to share in Christ, in the Jewish Messiah, and be one people together with the Jews in Christ. Now, God had announced that basically through Abraham. But the reality of it, and the fullness, and all that that meant is now seen through what Jesus himself did and through the, the preaching of the, the apostles in, in the New Testament days. And so that means that as we teach or preach Christ, we need to show how the whole Bible points to him. Now, again, the New Testament may be a little easier. The Old Testament sometimes seems much more difficult. And yet, if we look at the Old Testament, break it up into the three sections that the the Hebrews broke it into, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the law points to Christ. It exposes our sin, shows us our need of a Savior. It shows us how Christ, uh, fulf- or, or Christ fulfilled the law through his personal obedience to it perfectly, how he fulfilled the law with all the ceremonies that were required for the sacrifices and so forth. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Think of the prophets who prophesied, uh, much as we saw in Isaiah this morning, of God's doing a great renewing work. Uh, looking forward to what would happen in the New Testament days, but some of it actually looks forward to things that are yet to come with Jesus' second coming and that glorious new heavens and new earth. But Christ himself was the fulfillment of those prophecies. Now think of the writings, books like Psalms, uh, or uh, which some speak very graphically of Jesus, uh, like Psalm 22, uh, the writings, the, the Proverbs, Jesus himself being the embodiment of wisdom, the wisdom of God. You know, it was on the road to Emmaus, we read about in Luke 24, where it says Jesus took these two, these disciples who were with him. It said, for Moses and the prophets showed him everything written in the scriptures concerning himself. From Moses, the law, from the prophets, from the Old Testament, Jesus showed them everything written there concerning himself. Now, this has some pretty big implications for us. I like the way... um, Brian Chappell, president of Covenant Seminary, puts it when he says you have to avoid the deadly bees. What are the deadly bees? Well, if we preach or to your Sunday school class, teach a message that goes this way. You need to be good. Well, we've already talked about that uh, earlier this month when we talked about the song says be good for goodness sake. The scriptures never say that. The scriptures say, Christian, be good because you died with Christ and been raised to new life. Be good messages can be deadly. Uh, Be disciplined 
You know, you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray longer. You need to go to more church services. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to just hunker down and try harder. Those can be deadly. And another that he mentions is the be like. And these are a favorite of Old Testament teachers everywhere. You know, just be like David. Slay the giant. No, 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 don't, don't commit adultery. Of course not. But be like David when he kills the giant. That's the David you need to be like. Or be like Moses. Well, not the Moses who hit the stick, you know, and disobeyed God and couldn't go into the... No, 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 don't be like Moses that way, but be like Moses on his better days. You see the problem. The Bible deliberately depicts these heroes, and they were heroes of the Old Testament, with all of their faults, so that we see that they were fallen human beings in need of the grace of God in Christ just as we are. So beware of the be like messages, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching, whether it's your own reading and understanding of the scriptures. But wait a minute, aren't those things biblical? Doesn't Hebrews point out these heroes of the faith with the implication we should be like them? Yes, it does. And yes, we are to be good. And yes, we are to be disciplined. However, if the message that comes across that if you just do these, God is going to be pleased with you. One, that's not true because even those things are tainted with our sin. Two, we'll never match up to our own expectations and we'll always end up discouraged and in despair. Is that good news? No. The good news is that God has sent us a Savior who was good for us, who was disciplined for us, and who was more like Moses than Moses ever was. And he did that for us. That's good news. That's the gospel. Be good, be like, and try harder. Be disciplined. That's not good news. But the gospel is good news because God sent a Savior who has done all of those things for us. So we wouldn't have to. No, because he's changed our hearts. We're different people. Those are the things we want to do. But we know that our acceptance with God, our welcome into the arms of our Father, is not based on our performance, but on that of Jesus. And it's perfect. And he's already won everything for you from the Father that you will ever need, that you will ever have. God could not love you and accept you more than he already does. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, and it was God's command, Paul says, that these things should be known. Well, before we move on just a little bit, I want to take just a minute to talk about, we've talked about the method of the gospel is preaching, the content of the gospel is Christ. That is the responsibility of the pulpit. And preachers who preach things other than the Scriptures, or, heaven forbid, preach contrary to the Scriptures, who who preach things other than Christ, are accountable for their misuse of the pulpit. But the congregations that let them do that are also somewhat culpable for that abuse of the pulpit. Yes, the responsibility falls upon the preacher, But does not the congregation that puts up with that kind of thing week after week, month after month, that lets their children grow up hearing that counterfeit preaching, do they not also share in the responsibility for that abuse of the pulpit? Of course they do. It is the preacher's responsibility to explain and apply the word of God. But it's also the congregation's responsibility to settle for nothing less. And so, dear friends, certainly in this church, whether it's me or someone else, do not settle for anything less 
than the preaching of the scriptures, than the preaching of Christ and him crucified. And if you are looking for another church, you move away or whatever, decide you don't like me anymore, whatever it might be, and you're looking for another church, do not settle into a church that does not preach the scriptures and does not preach Christ crucified. You are harming your soul. You'll be harming your children's soul. You will atrophy. You will die of malnourishment. Always ask yourself, when you come out of hearing preaching, do I understand a passage of the Bible better? And do I see what that passage in some way requires of me? If you can't answer those two questions positively, keep looking. Or... Hold the preacher accountable. You know, those men came to Jesus and said, uh, came to Jesus' disciples and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I know at least two pulpits, uh, one in Savannah and one in Jackson, Mississippi, where that is displayed in the pulpit to remind the preacher he's not there to share his abundant political wisdom or his thoughts on the issues of the day. He is there to preach Christ. Sir, we would see Jesus. Do not settle for anything less from this pulpit or any other. Well, Paul goes on to talk about the purpose of the gospel in verse 26b. What is it? Well, it's to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, if you've been part of this series or you know the book of Romans, that may have a familiar ring to it. Turn back to Romans 1. Paul ends where he began. Romans 1, verse 5. Paul describes his calling and that of the other apostles. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And how here he ends, to bring about the obedience of faith. The exact same phrase. What does it mean? We said last time, there's several possibilities, but basically two, I think, that are in the running. One is the obedience that arises out of faith. In other words, as a Christian trusting in Christ, there will inevitably be obedience to the word of God that arises. If you claim to be a Christian yet have no interest in God's word or obedience to God's word, you're not a Christian because that would not be true of a Christian. If you have been born again by the Spirit and you are a biblical Christian, there will be a desire to obey God's word. You won't do it perfectly, but you will desire to do it and you will work toward that with the help of the Scriptures, the help of the Holy Spirit, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, certainly that's a valid understanding of that phrase. However, it seems to me preferable to understand Paul here referring to the obedience of faith as the obedience that is faith. In other words, faith itself is the act of obedience to the gospel. The work of God is this, Jesus said, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, I'm not wanting to be dogmatic about that because both are true. And certainly in Romans, Paul sees belief and obedience as, as, as joined together, as going right together. Paul says that's the purpose of the gospel, to bring about obedience of faith, whether it's the obedience that is faith when we come to believe in, to trust in Jesus as our Savior, or that obedience that arises in our lives as a result of that faith in Jesus. That's the purpose of the gospel. Bring people into a relationship with God through faith in Christ, and then to live in a way that's pleasing to God through their obedience to God's word, also through their faith in Christ. Remember we said Jesus not only reconciles, he sanctifies. He makes us actually 
holy in the way that we live. So that's the purpose. What's the result of the gospel? Verse 27, the result of the gospel is the glory of God. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Passage, as we said, is a doxology, words of glory, or an ascription, ascribing praise. And that's exactly the word that Paul uses. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Good theology should always lead to worship. Because good theology leads us to a growing and deepening and overwhelming appreciation of the God about whom we are theologized. And this is true of Paul. How many passages where Paul is talking about God or what God has done or who God is, and he just breaks out into praise. Look back over at Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. Paul has just finished Romans 9, 10, and 11, which if you're familiar with Romans, you know is some of the most difficult uh, of the passages in the entire book, where he's talking about Israel and how it fits into God's saving purposes and God's purposes in election, that is, choosing whom he will save, reprobation, passing over those whom he will not save, and how all of this fits together. Difficult theology. Tremendous passages, but they require serious thinking and following what Paul's saying and digging into what he's saying. And how does he end it all? Does he just sort of shake his head and say, who can, you know, who can understand all this? No. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. He acknowledges it's difficult, but it doesn't lead to resignation. It leads to worship. It leads to praise. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul ends that passage and he ends the book as a whole here with this doxology, this ascription of praise. Because it's God in his wisdom who is able to bring us from sinful, lost rebellion and make us, make us his faithful and obedient and holy people. Because God, while he shares with us his joy, while he shares with us the blessings of being with him in eternity forever, one thing he does not share with us is his glory. The glory in our salvation belongs to God alone. And when Paul comes to the end of Romans, the most detailed and systematic exposition of the gospel that we find in the entire Bible, he ends with this note of praise. To God and his wisdom be all glory for what he has done forever. And so Paul ends Romans where he began, with a simple statement of the gospel. And he does so because ultimately the gospel is all he has and all he has to offer. Well, the gospel, really, when it comes down to it, is all we have. God's grace to us in Christ. That is all we have for ourselves, and ultimately, it's all we have to offer the world. But the amazing thing is that it's enough. It's more than enough. The blood 
and the resurrection of Christ are more than enough to atone for our sins in 2008 and more than enough to make us his obedient people in 2009. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ. As we just celebrated one aspect of it in Jesus' birth, we thank you for the entirety of it, for the whole counsel of God, for your purpose from beginning to end, to redeem a sinful people, make them your own, called by your name, to be with you in glory forever. Father, may every one of us, by your grace, be one of those people, one of your people, through the finished work of our Lord Jesus. Lord, bring home to our hearts, our minds, by your Holy Spirit, the ultimate reality of who you are, of what you have done for us in Jesus, and what you have in store for us who have called on the name of the Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.